Well, to begin our exploration of this altar of incense, um, there's a pretty beautiful replica that's been made, and we have a video of that replica. And so I'm going to read the passage of Scripture, or one of the passages, that talks about its construction. But on the screen, I'm going to give you a glimpse through this video of what this altar of incense looked like. And, and, And God is very, very specific about all the details of this altar because all of it speaks uh, a parable. It speaks a story about how we can relate to God. So let's go ahead and play, play the video while I read from Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations for it is most holy to the Lord pretty amazing piece of furniture that God designed in the altar of incense. Now, if we remember when we've been studying the tabernacle, everything in the courtyard of the tabernacle was made of bronze, and bronze speaks of judgment. The altar and the basin that were made of bronze dealt with sin, removing sin, the payment of sin being paid. Here, the blood of that sacrifice was sprinkled upon the altar of incense on those horns, which allowed passage for the priests and allows passage for us into God's presence. And so here, inside the holy place, inside the tabernacle itself, everything is made of gold, which represents God himself and our fellowship with him. And so Everything that we read, even though some of it is strange in its details and, and, and maybe hard for us to relate to, is, is, a, is an invitation for you and I to grow closer and closer to the Lord. So let's look at this and, and see some of the things that it points to. First of all, the golden altar points to Jesus Christ as our high priest. In Israel the high priest would go into the tabernacle and once a year he would go into the Holy of Holies with what we des- was described here with um, 
a sacrifice of blood that would be placed on the altar of incense, and then he would bring incense into the Holy of Holies, which we'll look at next week, and he would burn incense before the Lord at the, at the, the holiest place where God's presence, his Shekinah glory would dwell. And only the high priest, only after he had made all these preparations, could go into that presence because there was a veil that separated um, the holy place from, from the ordinary priest that would minister in the tabernacle. But the scripture tells us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he spoke the words, it is finished, that that veil tore from the top to the bottom, opening the way into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. Because Jesus had completed everything that the tabernacle and all its systems of of sacrifice were pointing to, that God would offer himself as a sacrifice for us. And so the altar of incense points to Jesus' role as our high priest. Um, It is an earthly copy of what is true as in heaven. There is an altar of incense that is before the throne of God in heaven, and this is a picture of it, of a a portrayal. It may not look literally like this in heaven, but this is a model of what it was like. And it was um, a, a picture in itself of who Jesus was and the ministry that he would perform. That's why the passage that we read in Hebrews is so important. Let me read it to you one more time. This is the passage that Eunice read to us. Since we have a great high priest, this is Jesus, Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. Let us grab a hold of our confession, of our faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. In other words, what he's saying is, Jesus understands right where you are. He understands the struggles, the doubts, the weaknesses, the failures. He understands everything about you. And knowing that, he wants to take you into the intimate relationship with God the Father. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think about that for a moment. Knowing every thought that you have, knowing every sin that you'll ever commit, knowing every selfish act, selfish, self-centered thought that you have, Jesus says, I want you, and I don't just want to save you. I don't want you to just get a get-out-of-hell-free card. I want you to come with me and be with the Father. That's what his role as high priest is, is he is taking us, he's interceding for us and bringing us into the presence of the Father. And that's why he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the invitation of Jesus, our great high priest, and the work that he does there at the altar of incense. Oftentimes, we have a limited view of prayer. If you and I really believed that we were entering into God's throne room and that as you pray, Jesus himself is presenting your prayers before the Father, would it change how you pray? Would it change the attitude that you have? Would it 
perhaps make it a greater priority in your life if you really believe that that was what was happening, that Jesus himself was welcoming you into the Father's presence. And if you really believe that, how much bolder would you become in your prayers? Bold not in yourself, but bold in confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done. And would it change the things that you pray about? Because here's a truth I've discovered. To pray is to change. Prayer produces change not in God, but change in us. This is how God's grace works in our lives. Prayer is the avenue that enables God's love, God's joy, God's peace, his patience, his gentleness, his faithfulness to overtake our lives and transform us in the midst of our circumstances. That's what he does in prayer. And here's one more, here's a really important key. Prayer is more about fellowship than it is about asking for things. Prayer is more about fellowship with God than it is about asking for things or asking for him to intervene in circumstances in your life. That's a part of it. It's an important part. But if we really believe it's about fellowship, about union with God, it'll be something we desire more and more. When we think about Jesus Christ, that one of the things that always amazes me when I read through the Gospels and I look at Jesus is um, Jesus does not have a ministry plan that we can figure out. I mean, if you were to try to, to do like we often do in the church and often do in business, where we try to take some principles, we see Jesus do something or we see Moses or someone else do something and we try to get all of our four points like a good preacher uh, and we alliterate them all and make them all start with the same letter and we get this plan and we go, oh, this is how you do it. This is how you do ministry. When you try to figure that out with Jesus, it doesn't make any sense because he seems to just go from one place to the next. Now, there's something driving him, absolutely, but it doesn't look like a plan or that we could ever um, follow after. But what we see in Jesus is great intentionality about one thing. Over and over and over again, we read these little sentences that almost sound like something that's just an, an afterthought where it says, early in the morning, Jesus got up to pray. Or he slipped away to a secluded place to pray. Time and time again, all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that. And in fact, when the disciples, oftentimes when they can't find Jesus, they find out he's been off in the middle of the night praying. Now, why is that? He's not going there to present his list of needs. He's not going into prayer to find out what God's will is, which is something we often do and need to do. What Jesus is doing is going to enjoy his union with the Father. He's wanting to be in his presence because he realized that that's where life is. One of the reasons why I firmly believe that Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, we don't see him being stressed out is because he continually abided in the presence of the Father and in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And it transformed everything about how he lived. His prayer life is what we should seek to, to follow, to model our lives afterwards. 
he continually got up early and went into the Lord's presence. He realized how important that was. So the altar, first and foremost, represents Jesus as our high priest. But secondly, it has a, a, an another role. It's a role that includes you and I. And I want to show you this from the blueprint of the furniture. So we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to put the, the blueprint there up that kind of gives us an overview of the elements there in the tabernacle. And you'll see there's actually um, seven pieces of furniture. We have the altar, uh, the burnt offering, the bronze altar out in the courtyard where the sacrifice was made. We have the bronze basin or laver where um, there was washing, and it represents, remember, it was made of mirrors, and so it it represents both baptism and the washing of the water of the word. Because when you look in the word of God, God shows you yourself, and he shows you himself, and he shows the transformation that needs to happen in us. And then when you come into um, the holy place, you see the golden lampstand that we looked at last week, which um, represents the Holy Spirit. We see the table of showbread, which represents Jesus, the bread of life, and how he is to continually be in us, and we are to abide in him, and his word is to abide in us. And then in the Holy of Holies, there's actually two pieces, the Ark of the Covenant, which is that piece on the bottom uh, that we'll look at next week, and then on top of it was called the mercy seat. But right in the middle of those three pieces, because you see the Ark of the Covenant represents first and foremost God the Father. The lampstand represents first and foremost the Holy Spirit, and the table of showbread represents Jesus, the Son of God. Right in the middle of those three is this altar of incense. And it not only represents Jesus' role as the high priest, it represents us. Because you see, Jesus didn't just save us so that we could um, not die. And not, have, not face punishment. He saved us to become a kingdom of priests to our God. That altar of incense is about you and your relationship with God. And how appropriate that God chose to place what represents us right in the middle of God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. Because that is the communion he wants us to experience. Isn't that cool? Some of you just don't believe it yet. You think I'm just making stuff up. I promise you, I'm not. This is where God wants you and me in our relationship with him, is right in the midst of him. And so what we see, and when we begin to look through the rest of of Scripture, is we discover that this altar points to the prayers of the saints, to us praying through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus presenting those prayers before the throne of the Father. We are connected with that. We are in Christ at the altar of incense. This is what the scripture teaches us when he says, when he tells us and reminds us that you're in Christ. Right now, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, your spirit is united with Jesus in heaven. This is what Ephesians says, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are in him right now. We're right there in that throne room with him, connected to him. Whether we realize it or not, whether we live based upon that truth is a different story. We are in the heavenly places with Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Right now we're in him. We're united because of what he has done. And, And so think about what that means about our prayer life. That when we're coming into his presence, we're coming in Jesus and we're right there with him where we can boldly come before the throne and share the concerns of our hearts as well as be able to have fellowship with the Lord. So what do you think God thinks about your prayers? Do you think he grades your prayers? Kind of like, um, you know, we have a lot of teachers that, that are here, you know, and do you think he kind of gives a marking on your prayers? Or, and he goes, oh, that one's not so good and files it away. Or maybe do you think um, your prayers are really temporary, that they are just for that moment and then they're gone? What the altar of incense describes for us is that prayers of God's people are like a fragrant aroma that he continually enjoys smelling, sensing, having be around him. It brings God pleasure. And it is something that is lasting. It is not something that he forgets. It is a pleasure that he enjoys. And not only does he enjoy it, the scripture actually tells us that he stores up your prayers and my prayers because he has a purpose that he's going to do with our prayers. I want to show you something that's absolutely amazing. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to step into the heavenly throne room of the Lord and see what he has to say about your prayers and my prayers. In Revelation chapter 8, God is unfolding the completion of his plan to redeem, to buy back all of creation, to restore it. And and there in, in the throne room, he's getting ready to pronounce judgment on sin and the corruption that has happened in, in the world. But before he does that, He tells us this in Revelation chapter 8. Here's the scene. When the Lamb, this is Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. This shows the patience of God. He's, He's waited through the ages to bring this completion, but even when he's getting ready to bring judgment, he pauses again. It's one more opportunity for people to turn their life to the Lord. And here's what is described. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. A censer, um, maybe a word you're not familiar with in English, it's what incense burns in. It's kind of like a bowl with a top on it, and it has some, some holes and some vents. And the incense would be placed in that censer, and then its smoke would rise up through those vents, and it would um, carry all through the room. Another angel came and stood before the altar with a golden censer and was given much incense to offer 
with what? With the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. You see, God is collecting the prayers of his people and making it an incense that perpetually comes before him and that he is going to use as part of the completion of his plan of redemption. Your prayers and my prayers, especially when they're focused on God's kingdom and God's glory, are collected together, and God is going to use those to complete his plan of redemption. Look what it says. It says, um, the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth, and there were peals of thunders, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's the beginning of the completion of God's plan to restore all things. And part of that is your prayer and my prayers. That's humbling. But that's how much God values our prayer life. It's not something that is small to him. It is precious. And when we recognize that prayer is precious to God, it should change us. This is what is meant when James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God chooses to use prayer to accomplish his purpose and his will. Now, sometimes people, um, when we, they talk about prayer, they, they have a difficult time because we have a, a view that sometimes is fatalistic. We recognize that God is sovereign, that he is in control. And, and sometimes people will say, if God knows what he's going to do and he's already going to do it, why should I pray? Anybody brave enough to say you've thought that? Yeah. Right. We, we do. All right. I have, a, I have a simple question. I've asked this before. Um, the scripture tells us that all the days of your life are numbered. Every hair upon your head is numbered. So I have two questions for you. Number one, why do you breathe? Well, yeah, but God says all the days of your life are numbered. So you're going to live as long as he determines, right? Well, we breathe because that's how God made us to live, to accomplish that all those days of our life. He also says he knows how many hairs are your, of your head are and they're numbered. So why do you comb them? Because it looks better, right? It, I mean, it just, at least it helps. It's God knows all those things, but he creates ways in which we participate in his work. And prayer is exactly that. It is inviting us into the greatness of what he is doing. It's a privilege to be able to pray to be able to, to cooperate with the Lord and discover his plan and his purpose. Yes, he will accomplish all that he intends to do, but he invites us to be a part of it. And he has chosen prayer to be an instrument that accomplishes his purpose, just like he has chosen breath to be an exercise that you and I have that enables our life to dwell in our bodies for all the days that God has ordained for us. Prayer is incredibly vital. Well, let's, let's look a little more in depth at the construction of this altar because there's a lot to learn from it. Um, Exodus chapter 37 gives us a, a short description of it. We already read the long description, 
but it reminds us what it's made of. It says in verse 25 that he made an altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, which is about half a meter, and its breadth was a cubit. It was square, and it was two cubits, or a little over a meter tall. And its horns were one piece with it, and he overlaid it with pure gold, and its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it, and he made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by a perfumer. Here's, the, here's the, the construction of the altar, but the details are important because illustrated in the altar of incense is the truth that Jesus is fully human and fully God. It's made of wood, but it's overlaid in gold, pure gold. And the wood that it's made of, this acacia wood, in Hebrew it would be the word siddim, um, and some of your translations will actually translate it that way. If you have like King James or New King James, it'll translate that word as Siddam. Um, that word for that particular tree has a verb form. And this is one of the things we're going to find out a lot about the, the symbols that are built into how this was made. The verb form of that, wood, or of that word for the wood means scourge of thorns. The tree itself was known as the thorn tree. And it was known, if you were to use the verb form of sitham, it would mean to scourge someone with thorns or with spikes that would beat into their flesh. Now, why do you think God chose that tree to be the wood from which he would make this altar? It's because it was pointing to what he was revealing all through the scripture, that by Jesus' stripes, we would be healed. He would take upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved. He would be fully human, represented in the wood, but fully divine. And not just wood. I mean, God could have made this out of anything. Olive wood is much more decorative. But he chose this acacia wood because it spelled a message that God was going to redeem the curse, the curse that had brought thorns on the earth to begin with because of human sin. He chose that wood because it represented the beauty and the perfection of what he was going to do through his son. Isn't that cool? God cared enough about that little detail to send you and I a message of his grace. So it's made of wood, which represents Jesus' humanity. It's covered in pure gold, which represents his divinity. And it has on it rings. Those rings were very practical because they would put the poles through there to be able to carry it from place to place. But the rings that he placed on there were also representative of Jesus' authority. In the scripture, a ring, a signet ring especially, represents the authority of the one who wears it. It is a royal authority. And Jesus, as our high priest, is a priest not out of the tribe of Levi, but out of the, um, the line of Melchizedek or like Melchizedek, which means he was a king priest. And that ring was really significant. It takes us back, if you remember the story of the pro what we call the prodigal son, 
um, when he's returning back to his father. His father sees him at a distance and he runs out to him and he embraces him. And this is a picture of God's welcoming us when we turn back to him. And the scripture tells us that he put a robe around him to clothe him and, and, and give him a new position. He clothed him. It's a picture of being clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And it says he put new sandals upon his feet and he put a ring on his hand, representing his authority as the heir. That's what the ring represents. One of the great joys that we've had as, as parents is that we were able to give Becky's wedding ring to our daughter, Melissa, as a blessing upon her and her, and, um, her marriage to her husband, Seth. For our sons, we chose to give them all a ring. All, all my boys wear this exact same ring, which has a rampant lion on it, to remind them to be bold in their faith and to remind them that they have authority in Christ, authority to lead their family in submission to him. They can rest upon his authority. That's what God does for us. Those rings represent the authority of Jesus, but also we've been made joint heirs with him. You have authority. That's why Jesus, it's such a beautiful thing in what we call the, the Great Commission. He says, all authority and power has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gives us an assignment in his authority and sends us out in his authority to accomplish his work and his purpose. Those rings represent that. The horns that are there on the top of the altar of incense have significance in the scripture as well because a horn always refers to power. That's why even in the, the, the defeat of Jericho, when uh, Joshua sends the people of Israel out and they're marching around that city, what brings down the walls is not their marching, it is the blowing of the trumpet, the blowing of the horn that then ultimately brings down those walls because it's representative of God's power. And that's always what they represent. It's the same thing. Now, to help you grab a hold of this, let me give you one verse that puts this hopefully together. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons or as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, sons and daughters, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer slaves, but sons. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, even in the altar, he wants to remind us not only of who Jesus is, but of who you are in him. And that changes how we pray. Now, with this, um, we're not going to take the time to look at the golden censer today, but we're gonna, I want to show you the incense itself, the incense for the altar, because this will teach us something about the quality and the way that we approach God in prayer. God was very specific about every detail of how things were to be done in the tabernacle. The priests were to burn incense on the golden altar every morning 
and every evening, the same time um, that the burnt offerings out in the courtyard were being made. The incense was to be left burning continually or perpetually throughout the day and night as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And they were not to burn any strange incense. God gave a recipe for what the incense was that was to burn upon this altar, and they were not to use that recipe for anything else. To do so meant death. And so it was reserved for his presence because it represents our prayers. The incense was to be made of an equal part of four precious spices. And most of these, we, most of us have never even heard of except for one. Four precious spices. Exodus chapter 30, verses 34. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. Stakte and ochna. I don't even know how to pronounce it, so I'm just making it up. So if you say it differently, you're probably right. Okay? Galbanum. Sweet spices with pure frankincense. Probably the only one any of us have ever heard of before. Of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. So they were to take these four ingredients and then mix them with salt because it was a reminder that we are the salt of the earth. It was um, God foretelling how Jesus would give us this role as a preservative and flavor in the world and that our prayers would bring transformation, that he would use them to advance his kingdom. But his, each of these elements, each of these um, fragrances that were to be blended together had a significance to them. And, and just like the wood, they have a proper meaning that is their noun, but their verb form means something distinct, an action that is taken. And so the first one, that first element, stakte, it comes from the Hebrew word in the top, and it means um, to reign or speak forth prophecy. Here's what that means. It means that when you pray and when I pray, we are to pray, first of all, in alignment with God's word, and we are to pray God's word. Because that's what it means. One, 25% of this perfume was making sure that we were praying in accordance with God's word. God wanted to be very specific. You don't just ask for anything that you want. We want to make sure that what we pray lines up with what God has revealed about himself and about his purposes, about his work, and about us. So we're to pray the word of God. That first element was telling us that. The second one, the onacha, it's, it's the Hebrew word shalet, and it means a, a roaring sound or a shout. And, and actually, the picture behind it is that of a lion of a lion who is focused, who is roaring, but is undeterred on his way to accomplish what he wants to do, which in the case of a lion is to get his prey. But it means to be undeterred, to have a boldness, not in ourselves, but a boldness in our high priest, Jesus Christ. So we're to pray the word of God, and we're to pray with great confident faith, That's ultimately what this means, a confidence that the Lion of Judah has accomplished all that God has assigned for him to do. 
That's what this spice is pointing to. And then thirdly, we have the galbanum. And what this means, the Hebrew word behind that means the fat or the first or best choice. Whenever sacrifices were made upon the altar, God would say, I want you to bring the fat. I want you to bring, and it was this word, this um, word halbana, I want you to bring the best part to me. And it's a reflection of how we are to pray. Jesus said this in his model prayer that we prayed a little while ago. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not just on earth, but in my life. It means that if we are to pray in a way that is a sweet aroma before the Lord, we pray the word of God fully confident in the Lion of Judah, in Jesus Christ as our high priest, and we pray um, also by putting him first. His kingdom come before my concerns. That's the priority in our prayer. And then finally, is the frankincense, the one we've heard of. Frankincense means purity or white. And even even in English, um, there's a phrase that we will use. If I was to say, to be frank, what I mean is I'm not going to have anything that's hidden. I'm not going to put any pretense on it. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. Because frank means purity. It means whiteness. In fact, frankincense literally means white incense. That's exactly what it means. And so our prayers also need to come from clean hands and a pure heart. When we pray, when we come to the Lord, we want to pray his word. We want to pray with bold confidence in our high priest, Jesus Christ. We want to pray as well, putting God's first and his kingdom first And we want to pray being cleansed and prepared as we enter into God's presence. When we do that, our prayers become a beautiful fragrance to the Lord. You see, when we're looking to put those four things in place in our prayer life, that's when Jesus says you can pray what you want in his name because that's what brings us into his name. And whatever we ask, it will be done. God, even in the instructions for the incense, teaches us how to pray and how to have our prayers answered. My hope and my prayer for myself is is that God will teach me this truth and transform how I pray, that I will pray the word of God. I will pray with confidence fully in the Son of God, that I will give God the best of all that I have, of all that he's entrusted to me and put his will before my own and I will pray with clean hands and a pure heart. So here's some questions for us to ask about our prayers. Am I praying the word of God or at least in in alignment with God's word? Am I praying with faith, with a genuine belief that God hears me because of Jesus Christ? Am I intentional and focused in my prayers or, or am I easily distracted because the, the idea of, of that lion is that he's undistracted. And I don't know about you, but most of the time when I pray, I suffer from mental drift. I get about 
a sentence and a half into my prayer and then I think of something that I needed to do or something I forgot or that I'm hungry or whatever it is, but I'm easily distracted. And what helps me most is to, is to write my prayers so that I don't get distracted. Am I putting God's kingdom and his work first or my comfort in my prayers? And do I have clean hands and a pure heart? Or do I need to return to the Lord in areas of my life where I'm sinning, where I'm rebellious, where I'm, I'm not practicing forgiveness, where I'm out of fellowship with him? If we learn to pray along the pattern of what God has described, we will have great intimacy with the Lord. We will enjoy his presence. We will worship him in ways we've never experienced before. And we'll see him answer our prayers in ways far beyond our expectations. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the patterns that you show us in your word. Thank you for the gift of prayer. Lord, I confess before you and before my brothers and sisters here that too often I take prayer for granted. Lord, help me to see what a privilege it is, what a joy it is, what authority we have, what power is there in prayer. And enable us, Lord, to pray in accordance with your will, with your word, with full faith in you, and with pure and clean hearts. Lord, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name.